Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 29 with Pastor John King. Good morning, everybody. Well, today uh, we're going to finish off chapter 1, Colossians. We'll be in uh, verses 21 through 29 while you're turning there. Um, just a kind of a quick review of last week. Uh, that we, we threw out a lot of terminology, generated a lot of discussion. So I want to review a little bit for last week while we're uh, getting ready for, as you turn to our, our passage for today. We learned some key words that describes Jesus' preeminence, and that is really his, uh, the fact that he is to be first. He's to hold first place in everything. Absolutely everything uh, created, all things uh, in heaven and earth, all things seen and unseen. We said, Paul said, he is the image of the invisible God. You know, Jesus makes God the Father and God the Spirit visible to people. And, and it's mainly in his character, in his deeds, and in his words. It's not so much what he looked like, but how he lived his life. He was first born over all creation. This is not literally in the physical or chronological sense, but quite literally in God's order. Jesus is supreme and sovereign over all things. By him, all things were created in the heaven and that are on earth. There is nothing, one writer puts it, there is nothing outside the scope of Christ's sovereignty since all things natural and supernatural were created through him and they are therefore subject to his authority. He is also before things in all things uh, in him all things consist. He always existed. He's uncreated. And he holds all, thing to, all things together. And we talked about the, uh, the atomic structure that science has shown us. You know, that space between the electrons and the protons and the neutrons. He holds that all in, in its perfect place. And so if you ever wonder how he's going to roll up heaven and earth like a scroll, well, I believe he's going to collapse all that space. But anyway... We'll be in a different place. We'll be in a place to actually see it in our heavenly bodies. But I don't want to get too far off. He is the head of the body, the church, the ecclesia, both at large and in the local congregations. Jesus is the head. He is the chief shepherd. He is firstborn from the dead so that in all things he may have preeminence. This is talking about his resurrection now, firstborn from the dead, which guarantees our resurrection. And then, of course, we finished last week about what the Father, how the Father expressed himself through the Word of God. He was pleased, and he was willing, and he had free intention that Jesus Christ would, his body would allow God to become incarnate through his Son. It's it's an amazing mystery. We still wrestle with it today. But in him all the fullness should dwell. In in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the Father, the entire fullness of God is present in Christ. And it's also, not only the fullness should dwell, but it's also by him. God was reconciling all things to himself in Christ. This refers to the act of restoring the relationship that was broken through sin to harmony. The purpose of Jesus' death on the cross was to bring all things created by Christ and for Christ into a harmonious relationship. And so those are the things we covered. There's a lot we covered last week. I just wanted to go through that. And then today we're going to pick up from that point. The, the work and the desire of God the Father through the person and the work of God the Son. We're going to pick up from that point and we're going to look at two main principles First of all, the responsibility of the believer. You know, what are we to do with all of that information? We have a responsibility. And also, we're going to see uh, the second part of today's message, the example of Paul's ministry style. And again, when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, you can see some great um, methods and, and the way the Bible describes uh, Paul's ministry style. And we should, we should look to mirror that here in our churches. So why don't we read our passage uh, again, verses 21 through 29. Paul says, and, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death 
to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What a privilege Paul had. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So Heavenly Father, as we uh, continue on in this wonderful passage uh, that speaks um, of how we are to respond, how we are to uh, view our, our position in you and all the work that you've done and the fact that you are firstborn and you know, firstborn from the dead and that you are above all things and you created all things, how are we to respond to that? And so, Lord, today you're going to show us that. And also, we, Lord, look to be uh, followers of what Paul does as far as he follows Christ. We look to be imitators of this great apostle who was simply considered himself not only an apostle, but simply a servant of the Word of God. And so, Lord, we, just, we come to you again. We come to this simple conclusion that your Word is life-giving, it's sustaining, it will change us, it will shape us and mold us. We believe that. And so, Lord, we just want to look at it today once again. Take it in and let it do its work by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So, Paul is going to kind of review what, for all of us, if you're a Christian you have what's known as a personal testimony. And Paul is simply going to kind of review the different um, stages in your life, if you will. And he's going to start with your standing before Christ, before coming to Christ. And he declares it. He says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. I mean, that's the place that everybody is before coming to Christ. You have no... You know, you have, you have the ability to do nice things and kind things, but for the wrong motives, for wicked motives. But you really have no pure goodness in your heart, according to the Bible, prior to coming to Christ. And so therefore, you may look good on the outside, but in truth and in reality, you were actually alienated. And you were, in your mind, you were actually alienated and you were enemies of God. That's why in Christianity we say you either come to Jesus uh, for eternal life or you perish in hell. It's, it's that simple and it's that, you know, explicit. And so you were once alienated and enemies of God by wicked works. I like what David Guzik, how he comments on this. He says that the ancient Greek word translated alienated is literally called, it's, it's meaning to be transferred to another owner. To be, to be transferred. This transfer of ownership from God to Satan and self affected us in both mind and behavior. At the fall, when we came under the curse of the devil, really, and the fall uh, in the Garden of Eden, now our ownership was, in a sense, transferred to Satan. And so, before coming to Christ, he's come to rescue us from that. But before that, you were enemies in your mind. You had hostility. You hated and you opposed God and all the truth of God. And sometimes that comes out when you witness of Jesus to people in our society. You know, you, kinda, you, can, you can see how the enemy works. A lot of times in our society, we tend to try to be, well, less and less these days, but polite and avoid 
the confrontation, we avoid uh, the discussion of, you know, religion and politics and all those things. But, you know, when it really wants to, when you really examine your heart, you can see that you as a person before Jesus, before coming to Christ, you were very hostile to him. And it was also displayed by your wicked works. You engaged in evil deeds. And so if you continue your life uh, through adulthood, you know, you're going to, it'll continue to grow. You may not be the worst person on the earth. You may look good, like I said, in front of others, but you have wicked works that you're going to feed. You're going to engage in evil deeds, whether they seem small or not. They're going to change you and, you know, seal your fate if you don't come to know the Lord. And so he says, before you had a standing where you stood under the influence of Satan. But then he says, now he talks about your reconciliation in Christ. He says, Yet now he has reconciled. Now this is the change that takes place when a person comes to Christ. You were once an alienated person. You were once hostile to God. You were going after evil desires. Now once again, uh, I like Guzik's comment on this. He says, God's answer to the problem of alienation, which we've established, is reconciliation. That's, God has an answer for these things. And it's initiated by his work, Jesus' work on the cross, where he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. That's what he's talking about there. In the work of reconciliation, God didn't meet us halfway. You know, it's not like, hey, you do this and I'll do that and we'll all work together. God meets us all the way. And he invites us to accept it. He invites us to accept salvation. And I agree with this, what he's about to say. I'm just going to quote. It says, One may use two different ways of understanding human need and God's salvation. You have our need, we're alienated, and then God's act of salvation. We, you and I, can see God as a judge, and we can know that we're guilty before him, and therefore we need justification, we need forgiveness. Or we can see God as our friend and that we have damaged the relationship with him and therefore we need reconciliation. And I, uh, folks, I believe that both of these are true. Some people respond to the judgment of God and others respond to the kindness of God. So we want to be careful that we don't just kind of say, oh, it can only be this one way. My theological system says it must be this way. Let's do biblical theology and realize that there are different ways it's all through Jesus, but how he works to bring people to salvation. And he did it, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You know, he, again, we said he went all the way in his body. This is the substitution. This is the Lamb of God. Now, why is Paul emphasizing Jesus' physical body? The reason is because um, many of the false teachers in Colossia at the time were trying to deny, they were actually denying the reality of Jesus' physical body. We talked about these Gnostics who emphasized spiritual, non-material reality over the material world, prompting some people to deny that Christ had a physical body. And it's very similar to what you see in modern day spiritualism, you know, new age belief systems and such. God is just some mystery, mysterious thing, you know. And uh, uh, we, we're, we're, we're here to say, no, that's not true. God is full, and in, in, through Christ we see the fullness of God. They wrongly considered uh, material reality to be evil, and they sought to escape it through abstaining from worldly comforts and pleasures. And so he's, he's going to say, look, Jesus went and he, 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 he died on the cross. And he says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, when you look at your own life and you realize that the, the, the flesh that we're still in uh, still has uh, an incredible amount of power over us. And so none of us is going to stand before anyone else and say, oh, yes, I am, I am uh, blameless uh, I am holy and I am above repro reproach apart from Christ. And that's what Paul's wanting us to understand. Um, and this is the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross. He, he was he's presenting us to the Father, uh, presenting us holy. In other words, we've now been transferred of ownership and we're set apart for him. 
We're totally, and this is totally apart from any ritual, any rule, or any man-made traditions. And we're blameless. Uh, King James Version says we're unblameable. We're unblameable before God, the Father. We are without blemish and faultless. Why? Because Jesus was the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice who died in our place. And he appropriates that perfection on us so that we can stand before the Father blameless or unblameable and above reproach in his sight. Unreprovable, King James. In other words, we will not be called to account and accused, unaccused, will be unaccused and blameless. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What about the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, which we all must appear before the Lord if you're a believer? And, you know, there is a difference. There is, there is judgment in the sense that God will, Christ himself will, will evaluate our lives when we get to heaven. He will evaluate our lives as Christians in the things we did from a true heart. Anything else, is, he'll, it'll burn it up. But that's not the same as the type of judgment that brings eternal damnation at the great white throne judgment. For those who are apart from Christ, who will stand one day, all who do not know Jesus, every person, old and young, smart, rich, whatever you were, you're going to stand before God and, and you won't be able to give an account. But when it comes to his body, the church, the, the, the saints, the Christians, Yes, he is going to evaluate, and he's going to, from that evaluation, he's going to make a determination as to our heavenly rewards, which we will, you know, immediately throw back upon these crowns. We will immediately give back to him and worship him for all eternity. So it's going to be like going to, if you ever were in a, in a sports tournament, it's a very simplistic, I used to do karate, we go to karate tournaments, my son and I at one point, our whole family, and you do your, your katas, or you have your, your matches, whatever you did, and then you stood before the judges, and you had like first, second, and third, and nobody else got anything, okay, it was a, it was a graduate, so different rewards, but they weren't, they weren't judging you in the sense that you were, you know, a rotten person, you know, they weren't throwing you out, it's just that God is going to judge us. Jesus is going to judge us um, by our deeds as Christians, but God will judge all who do not know him by their deeds as unbelievers. And so there's a difference between that. And that's why, because of his work on the cross, we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in the sight of the Father. And so what Paul has done is he has just described this biblical pattern of how the gospel works in the life of a believer. Think of your testimony. You, if you have a testimony of coming to Christ as Lord and Savior, whatever point in time of your life, your life before Christ, and then that point in time where you became a Christian, and the realization of his work on your behalf that made it all possible. And so that's what Paul is talking about. Jesus paid the price that you and I could never pay. And so what he's about to explain is now that you're a Christian, you have a responsibility until he calls you home or he raptures the church. You have a responsibility. And so he says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now this is sort of a dangerous passage. And I'll try to explain but, but, but what that word continue means to persevere. The New Living Translation says, you must continue to believe this truth. In other words, persist or stay with it. Keep sailing. You got to keep sailing. He says, continue in the faith. A person must continue to believe in Jesus Christ. One Bible uh, dictionary says, and to grow in this belief, he must become more and more grounded and settled in his belief in Christ. As you grow in the Lord, as you mature in Christ, as he takes you through the ups and downs and, and sees you through and answers the prayers and takes you through all the things in your life, you become more settled, more focused, and more centered on him. And, and one of the reasons why is because you stay in God's word and you encourage one another. You stay in prayer. 
If you just bounce around from every different thing and you go sampling every little bit of, you know, this part of the church and that, and you, you know, if you can't get rooted and grounded in Him in a local fellowship and in the Word of God, you're not going to have that solid foundation. Perhaps you will continue to even question your own salvation. Now, why is this a difficult passage in a sense? Why is it a dangerous passage? Well, you know, we know in 1 Timothy 4, um, 4, 1 and 2, you'll see the passage. It says, and I believe we're living in the latter days before Jesus' return. And notice what it says. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, I don't think any of us knows a lot of people like that. We may know people who have walked away from the faith, who once were faithful believers. We may know a few people like that, or we hear about them. I don't think, you know, some of you say, well, I, I got a whole bunch of people I know that are like that. And so there's a, it's a tough answer, because some people in the church would say, well, they were never saved, and that proves it. And some people would say, no, they, they gave up their salvation. They walked away from their salvation. And that's always going to be a debate in the church. And that's why this passage, passages like these, are, you know, they're a little tough. But we need to continue, when we read this, we need to be careful not to take it out of context. He's simply saying, continue in the faith. In other words, keep on keeping on what you believe. You haven't lost your salvation. Continue to move forward. He says to be grounded and steadfast. That means, like I was saying, stable and firm. You know, you, you have, you're grounded in Christ. It's like a firm, solid foundation of a building. When you look at a building and you see how it's built, it's not sinking in the sand. And you're steadfast. Now, this is, again, these are our responsibilities. We are required to stand firm and continue on being steadfast. And he says, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. In other words, not shifting yourself. And the only example I can think of that comes to mind for me is when I first made a profession of Christ back in the late 70s and it didn't stick. It wasn't a true, uh, my heart wasn't ready. So the word of God just didn't take root in my heart, in my life and in my heart. And so I didn't, as soon as hard times came, as soon as people, you know, started going, oh, Bible thumper, you know, why don't you come drink with us and hang out with us? Uh, man, I gave into it. So I, you know, I was those soils, those different soils. And Jesus talks about those parables of the soils. But once you've finally given your life to Christ and you've come to know him for, for certain, now you have a responsibility to remain steadfast and grounded. And like I said, it's from the Word of God. It's being in a church that brings the Word of God. And it's through the Spirit of God that keeps us. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, now he's talking to believers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But near the end of today's passage, Paul's going to explain how hard it is sometimes to be sold out for Jesus. And he says, interestingly, he says, the, the, the hope of the gospel that you heard, the true gospel, which was preached to every creature under heaven. Now, some would say that the word of God had been, at that time had gone to the entire world. Well, I don't believe that it had, but it certainly had spread far and wide. The problem for us is we don't have a very accurate record of what the gospel did outside of Europe, outside of northern Africa. You know, we don't have a great, a, a very uh, uh, rich historical knowledge of that. But we know that the gospel was spread to China, it was spread to India, it was spread all over the place. It's just we don't have a record of it as much as we have uh, for the other regions the, the, around the Mediterranean. The public proclamation really is what he's talking about. Jesus' great commission. He said to the disciples, you know, he says it to us, go into the world and preach the good news to everyone. That's, that's our marching orders even to this day. But when he says it was preached to every creature and under heaven, it kind of helps bring us to where we're going with this. What Paul's going to announce to us here later is the fact that no one is excluded from the gospel anymore. It used to be God's people, the Jewish, you know, the, to the Jews first, right? 
But now it's been spread to the entire world, both Jews and Gentiles. You know, the wall of separation has been removed. And that's one of the great mysteries that Paul has the privilege of being able to tell us or tell the church there at Colossae. He also did it in Ephesians. And then he says, Paul, he says, which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, he was a servant. He considered his title of one who serves the gospel as more important than being an apostle. So I'm going to come back to the question. What does continue in the faith really mean? And if you're taking notes, it means persistent appropriation. Take something for your own use to the truth of God's promises. That's what it means. Don't allow yourself, don't allow me to get you in a weird conversation about whether you're saved or not, whether you can lose your salvation or not. You're never going to come to the end of that. People that agree with you are buddy, your buddies. People that don't agree with you don't like you. <laughs> That's what does where those kind of arguments go in the church. Yeah. But you need to know that continuing the faith means to persist. It's not to be continue being saved, but to continue appropriating his saving promises that were already declared. It's not that so you can become a new person, continuing the faith. We obey because God has made you a new person. God has done that work. If we live in the Spirit, as Galatians 5.25 says, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so we're to apply what was just declared in verse 22. You're blameless. You're holy before God. Paul writes, uh, one writer said this, Paul, uh, Warren Wiersbe said this, Paul used an architectural image uh, in this verse, speaking of a house which is firmly set on a foundation. The town of Colossae was located in a region known for earthquakes. And the word translated moved away can mean earthquake stricken. Paul was saying that if you are truly saved and built on the solid foundation, Jesus Christ then you will continue in the faith and nothing will move you. You heard the gospel and you trusted Jesus and he has saved you. In other words, we're not saved by continuing in the faith, but we continue in the faith and therefore prove that we are saved. It behooves each professing Christian to test his own faith and examine his own heart to be sure if he is a child of God. You can do two things at once, okay? Many things can be true at the same time. If you, you know, some people give a profession of faith like I did when I was young, and, and somebody would have told me, well, you gave your life to the Lord, and you can just go live, you know, however you are, because he's going to rescue you someday. And I, I, did, I got to the point in my life, uh, after 20 years, I couldn't claim to be a Christian by the life that I was living, just because I raised my hand 20 years earlier. So I needed to examine my faith. And so we all must do that. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul wrote this. He said, examine yourselves as to whether you are of the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So the point is, it is possible to think you're saved when you're not. But I don't believe that if you are saved, you just lose your salvation like you lose a set of keys, okay? That's not how it works. You have a responsibility to be steadfast and to remain and to continue in the truth that you've learned. And so the question for you and I is, are you firmly grounded? I mean, are you solid in your faith and you're solid in your walk with the Lord? Has time and trouble in your life actually been used to prove your love and devotion to Christ? And I believe for many of us that's true. Now we move on to a, a, the next section. Really, it's just the two main sections of today's message. The next section, and this is Paul's ministry to the church in general. He says, uh, it was a, first of all, he's describing the ministry. And again, if, you're, if you want to know what ministry is like, then take notes, because here it is. First of all, he says, uh, he's going to say, it was a ministry of joyful suffering for Christ and his church. You say, I, I don't want to sign up for that. Joyful suffering? What is that? That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to be a minister. 
And he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So to be glad as opposed to weeping and sorrow. Now, in the past, we know Paul had many trials and sufferings. Second Corinthians chapter 11, you can review that on your own to see all the things he's gone through, stonings and shipwrecks and beaten to death and thrown in prison and you know, hungry and cold, near drowning. But here, he's also, remember, he's writing this letter from a prison. He's presently in prison. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. New Living Translation says, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body. Paul considers it part of his calling, and he's not ashamed of it. So, it's a ministry of joyful suffering for Christ and in his church. This next portion, he says, and to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, I will tell you, it is one of the most debated verses in the entire Bible. You say, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Now what are you going to say to us? When he says, and to fill up in my flesh, this is Paul's, keep in mind, this is Paul's response to the devotion, uh, you know, the devotion, his devotion to Jesus in doing his part of, su- of the suffering. His full share of the sufferings. Uh, if you had an NASB version, a 1995 NASB Bible, it says, Paul would say, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. And then he says, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now this word afflictions means uh, pressing or pressure, opposition, uh, oppression, tribulation, and distress. For the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul's suffering benefited both Paul and the church. Um, Now, before, I think we're going to be able to explain it a little bit better than we have so far. But let me first say this. We know that when one of us suffers, we all suffer. We say it often, right? When somebody's having a difficulty, they're having a sickness or whatever it is, we pray. And in many cases, we all suffer. Um, But also, keep in mind that suffering can actually bring good to us. Somebody else's suffering can actually benefit us. What do I mean? Uh, One writer put it this way. This is why very often the suffering of a brother or sister in Christ, is a great source of blessing to the church. Why? Because of their elevated character that's transferred over to us. When we see somebody among us who is going through something we don't ever want to have to go through, and we see their character in the Lord, it's such an important aspect of who we are in Christ, our character and our conduct And when we see that with somebody who is suffering, you know, sometimes we say, I don't know how they do it. I'd be a basket case. I'd be miserable. But I don't think any of us would say, I just want my character to be destroyed. And so the character of those of us suffering here among us is a benefit for all of us because that character actually transfers over to us. And so you say, you know, and and we were reminded all the time that this is a very temporary time here on earth. It's very temporary. Uh, if you live to be 70 or 80 years old, you are doing really well. And after that, now, let me, let me say about Paul's suffering and suffering, uh, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We, we need to answer that if you're wondering about that. First of all, we, if you're taking notes, we need to write down what it does not mean. What it does not mean. Paul's suffering did not assist or help with Jesus' atoning work on the cross. Absolutely not. Also, we don't want to come away with the idea that somehow afflictions that are endured by Christians produce a special merit with God. A higher level of spirituality, if you will. We did say what it does, what it benefits, how it benefits us, and as we see one another endure hardship sometimes. Difficult things that are not easy. But it doesn't give you some kind of special standing with God. One writer put it this way. When you look at, you got, this is how it, why it's so important to read the Bible in context. 
The word afflictions is never used for the suffering of Jesus on the cross. The word afflictions is never in the Bible. You can look at, do the research yourself. It's never used to describe the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Most scholars and commentators see this as a reference to the affliction Jesus endured in ministry. So you have affliction and you have oppression, you have tribulation that takes place when you are a minister of Christ and Christ himself endured that. But what he did on the cross, only he could do. And the afflictions, he writes, are not yet complete. And so in this sense, Jesus still suffers as he ministers through his people. It's not that people don't like you because of, you know, you're a Christian. They don't like you because they don't like Jesus. And they don't like you saying that Jesus is the only way. And so Jesus still suffers as he ministers through his people. I hope I made that clear. Philippians 3.10, Paul talked about sharing in the suffering. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So it was a ministry of joyful suffering for Christ and his church. That was the first point. The next point is, it was a ministry of service for Christ and his church. He says in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. He, he's, you know, he considers himself like a waiter or a servant. He's delivering the message. He's, he's there to serve and to present the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's called to be the where he does the work of an evangelist. He does the work of a pastor teacher. He's also an apostle. And he specifically, notice he says, uh, to become a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me, you, to you, to fulfill the word of God. This is what we refer to as preaching of the word of God. There may be some of you here that want to be preachers someday. You want to teach God's word. Maybe you want to be a pastor of a church, or maybe you want to just lead a Bible study, or you, you're looking for ways because you have a hunger to teach God's word. And this is, when you're doing that, you're, you're the same as saying, I fulfill the word of God. I present you the word of God in its fullness. And that's why we preach the whole Bible here. We preach from Genesis to Revelation. Now, I have the privilege of preaching and teaching God's word mostly every week. Uh, next week, Pastor John's going to bring a message. Um, and we will give you the verses for that so you can read ahead and study. And take notes, because when I come back, I'm going to ask you what you learned. <laughs> so, but uh, no, just kidding. But I have the privilege of doing this, but it does take work, I'm going to tell you. And those of you who have uh, taught the Word of God understand that. And so therefore, I'm in need of your prayers. You know, if there's any success whatsoever of you having an understanding through the teaching ministry here at this church, I want to say it's because of your prayers. Okay. I want to say it's because of your faithfulness. Because it's not my strength. And so it was a ministry, you know, Paul's ministry for the church was a ministry of joyful suffering. It was a ministry of service for Christ and his church. And it was also an amazing, for Paul now, this is specific to Paul, it was a ministry of revelation of the glory of Christ and the mystery of his church. Paul was the one that God chose to reveal the mystery of the church. And so here we have it again. We talked about it in Ephesians. He says in verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from past generations. It was hidden from ages and from generations. This mystery is what we take for granted. It's what we know because we have the whole Bible. It's about... The mystery was God's plan of providing salvation for men through Christ, which was once hidden, but is now revealed. Could you imagine being there during that time in history, reading this letter and realizing and recognizing in the early days of the church that, you know, this, this was previously withheld, this information was previously hidden for all the people who lived prior, this plan that God had for the church. 
And he says, but it has now been revealed to his saints. His saints are, again, the, those who are holy and set apart, set apart for his use. That's you and I. What Paul is saying is that now a Christian, what I've said we, what we tend to take for granted, is somebody who has come to have the grace and peace with God because of the gospel and now has more understanding than the greatest prophets under the law. You, re- you realize that, right? You think of the greatest prophets under the law uh, of all the, those who came before the church in the Old Testament. And you and I, just ordinary old Christians, just ordinary old saints, have more understanding than they had. Now that speaks to their faith because we take for granted a lot of the things we know. We've, we've said this before, real quickly, I'll just explain. The primary meaning of a mystery in our day, in English, it's defined as something that's not understood or beyond understanding or something unknown that needs somebody to put the pieces together, you know, to solve the mystery, to solve the murder, uh, to, to solve the crime. Who did what? How did this happen? That's, that's how we tend to look at mystery. But in the New Testament, mystery refers to something that was totally unknowable. You weren't going to figure it out apart from God revealing it. And he did it in his timing. He did it through his word. And he did it to those who are led by the Spirit. You know, you have to be a believer. You have to be indwelt with the Spirit to understand anything from God's word. You see that all the time. And so some of the examples was Christ himself, his person, his resurrection, his dominion. These were mysteries that have been revealed. The rapture is, it was a mystery that is, is being revealed, was told by Paul. The fact that we have a church now is, was a mystery. Uh, the hidden forces that hinder or accelerate the kingdom of heaven and the spirit of disobedience towards God, that was a mystery. God's way of grace surely is a mystery. If you experience God's grace, you go, <laughs> Lord, that was certainly a mystery. The cause of the present condition of Israel and if you look at Romans 9 through 11, you see God's got all kinds of things. He's set the nation aside. But you know, Israel is growing rapidly. Jews from around the world are continually pouring into that nation. And that tells us we're near the end. Okay, I'm not a date setter. I'm not going to try and tell you that. But the fact that the nation Israel continues to grow, and people, Jews from around the world, they're not necessarily believers. In fact, it's a very secular society right now. But the nation Israel must be in place for Jesus to return. And it's happening. It's happening. So the mystery was hidden, and then we say in verse 27, simply kind of saying it again, this sovereign revelation of that ministry. You know, God would be the one to reveal it. Only he could do so. He said, God willed to make known, in verse 27, what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So Paul was simply doing God's will by announcing two main things. Two main things. First of all, he's going to announce the fact that the Holy Spirit is who indwells every believer. That was a mystery. That was unknown to the Old Testament saints. Totally unknown. And the inclusion of the Gentiles in the grand plan of God's plan. These are the things that Paul got to reveal that we take for granted. It is in the Gentiles that Christ dwells. That is, he dwells within anyone who opens his heart and life to him. When God sent his son Jesus Christ to the world to die for men, God showed the world that he loves every person equally. He does not favor anyone, not one person, much less a class or a nation of people. Every person can now approach God and become acceptable to him through his son Jesus Christ. And so this inclusion of the Gentiles was a mind blower, but it was always God's plan. He did say it. It's just that they didn't pick up on it. In Isaiah 49, 6, it says, Indeed, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? But notice, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's always part of God's plan. And this fact that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, the fact that the Holy Spirit resides within us is an astounding fact. 
the fact that Jesus actually lives in our hearts and in our lives, his presence is our guarantee. You think about it. The fact that he lives within you is our guarantee. It's a down payment from God of our eternal life, our forever living in glory, our resurrected bodies. I don't have a slide for this, but Jesus' words. He said, I will pray to the Father, John 14, verses 16 through 18. I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. That's the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in with you. He's promising the Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus say in verse 18? He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Christ promised his disciples that he wasn't just going to ascend into heaven and hope for the best. He was going to send the helper. And so this mystery among the Gentiles where God extended salvation beyond the Jews and to the rest of the world would have seemed impossible to an ancient world. The mutual disdain and the hatred was held by both sides. You want to talk about racial prejudice between Jews and Gentiles. It was the worst it's ever been. They despised one another like you would not believe. Recall our study from Ephesians 2 verses 13 through 18 concerning the middle wall of separation which was broken down by Jesus himself. We live, you and I live in a world of, you know, it, it may have been, if you've been on this earth for very long and you maybe lived through the civil rights marchings of the 60s and you lived through the, the whole movement of the 60s and the, the coming of the civil rights movement and all the things that it accomplished, the things that needed to be done. And now you look at our world and it seems like it's just the racial tension is coming back sevenfold, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just coming back. Uh, you know, it's, it often seems hopeless that our modern society will ever be, be able to get beyond it. And apart from Christ, it won't, because man cannot govern himself. Because the church that Christ has established, he makes it real. That separation between classes of people, between races of people, if you will, when there's only one race, the human race, but anyway, that separation is only possible in Christ. Only possible. I, were, I recently attended a conference and a pastor by the name of Al Pittman, who is black, and he spoke on the subject. Forty years ago, Pastor Pittman planted a Calvary Chapel in a predominantly white area of Colorado, Colorado Springs area. He struggled with the question of why a black man should be, lead a mostly white congregation until the Lord got a hold of him. And he said a lot of things, but I remember he said this. He made it a point to say, and you've heard this before, but Pastor Al Pittman considers himself a Christian who happens to be black instead of a black Christian. And he will tell you, and I, we should all say, what we have done in our society now is we've reversed all that. You know, we've, we've come back and now this racial tension is going crazy. But one of the greatest glories of the gospel is that it brings people who are different we don't deny that from each other and it brings them together. They're no longer separated. They're one in Christ. As we close in our last two verses today, I just want to say, and I apologize, I'm running a little bit long. I'm sorry. Uh, today we're going to just kind of, let me just go through real quickly uh, verses 28 and 29. He says, uh, this was Paul's message. Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul, what he is doing is he's looking for 100%. <laughs> How many people would say, I want to win everybody I know to Jesus Christ? 100% of the people that I speak to, I want them to come to know the Lord. I want them to come to be, to be settled and present and perfect in Jesus Christ. This is Paul and his motivation. George Whitfield said this. He, said, he was a great evangelist back in the 1800s. George Whitfield said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so what does he do? He does it through admonishing. He does it through teaching. He wants every man learning all wisdom, both in and out of the local assembly. And these false teachers have come into this church and they've promoted this sort of special knowledge. It's only available to certain, you know, highly spiritual people who had the secret code. And he's like, no, I want everybody to know the truth and the wisdom of the gospel. It's available to everyone. And his goal is to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And notice at the end, he says, to this end, I also labor. In other words, to toil. He doesn't just sit back and wait for God to work. I prayed, let the Lord move. He doesn't do it that way. He works. He works. And he works at it. And that's where we get discouraged. Because we don't want to work. We don't want to put forth any toil or any labor into the bringing of the gospel. And the NIV says, to this end, I strenuously contend. And you say, why shouldn't he be led by the Spirit? Absolutely. It's the Spirit that gives him the energy to work hard. Amen? Amen. So let's remember that as we close for today. As we close for today, remember this. You have a personal testimony. You have your life before Christ, when you came to Christ, and what has changed because of that. Take some time to examine that. You also have a personal responsibility to continue in the faith. Stay grounded in His Word and in prayer. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to examine your life and take stock. You may have done it today. And ask the question, am I a true Christ follower or just a faithful churchgoer? Am I a true follower of Jesus? Or do I just like to go to church every Sunday? And look to Paul's example. Joyful suffering, faithful service, proclaiming Christ with hard work. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you that you've equipped us, Lord, and your goodness is, is more than enough, Lord God. You have equipped us, Lord. You, have, you hold us responsible for the things that we know. And Lord, you, you want to go before us. You desire, Lord, that we should be made complete in you. And so, Lord, we thank you for equipping us and strengthening us today. And we just pray, Lord God, that you would really move in our hearts in a way that you desire. We surrender it now once again to you as we proclaim all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.